In 2001, I was on the Navajo Reservation, where I had a mysterious encounter with a humanoid figure that bore a striking resemblance to the infamous Mothman. I, Jerry Garcia, was on duty with my partner when we spotted a white, human-like figure perched atop a mesa rock near Shiprock, New Mexico. The beam of our flashlight illuminated its skull-shaped head and enormous, glowing eyes. Its jaw was shrouded in long, white hairs. The figure towered at eight feet tall, with a wingspan of nearly twelve feet. As it launched itself into the sky, it took about three steps, gave a single flap of its wings, and soared over the horizon at a speed exceeding 80 miles per hour. I have to ask myself, what was this creature? Could it be another sighting of the Mothman, or something entirely different? The Navajo, one of the most recognized tribes in us history, inhabit these lands. Is it possible that our territories are home to a host of unknown, terrifying creatures that not only dwell in the forests, but also in the remote regions? I invite you to share your thoughts on this incident below. I was with some friends screwing around in the mountains above Spokane during hunting season. We were driving up a dirt road when we saw some lights on the hillside above us, maybe 300 yards away, over a creek and up a hillside. It was dark enough, and we were in a canyon that the sides looked pitch black, except for three red lights. I thought it was hunters with headlamps set to red to keep their night vision, but they were acting kind of funny. They seemed to be hopping up and down every so often, even playing leapfrog. They never disappeared behind each other and moved pretty quickly at times. We ended up outside of the truck watching them and trying to see through the binoculars. They went out in the middle of the hill and we watched a minute longer with nothing happening. At that point, my buddy got out his massive spotlight. We lit up the hillside, everything looked normal, but where the lights were was a rocky cliff face with sheer drops and overhangs. We decided to head back at that point and started driving back down. Took a wrong turn and ended up on an impassable road by truck that led to the top of a ridgeline. My friend starts backing out when the entire forest lights up with an intense blue-white light. We all look up out the windows expecting to see a helicopter or something, but none of us can actually pinpoint the source. My buddy stomps on the gas in reverse. We go flying and right when we break out onto the main road. The light shuts off. It was far too bright to be a spotlight. Being near a ridgeline, I had a decent view, and it seemed like a large area of the forest was lit up like a movie set. We booked it down the mountain, and it became a running joke that we scared some fae, so they decided to scare us LOL. I've been back and seen the rock face in the daytime, but for the life of me, I cannot find the other road we pulled onto. I remember it looking really defined when we pulled onto it, though, and not even questioning if it was the right way. It's important to the story to know that I was basically a huge jerk leading up to what happened. See, I'm a graduate student, and I was at this point about six, eight months into a new relationship with a woman named Sarah. If it matters, I am female, and we were both around 30 at this time. 
The prior year, before I met Sarah, my best bud from school Josh, and I had gone on a great camping road trip over spring break. This year, I messed up and basically double booked myself to go camping with Josh and with my girlfriend because I am a scatterbrained idiot and I got confused about what plans had been discussed, solidified. Both Josh and Sarah were justifiably really pissed off and hurt, but I had made the plan with my girlfriend first, ultimately, so I had to flake on Josh. When it came time to planning, Sarah and I picked a campground in southwestern Pennsylvania with lots of good hiking. It's at least a five-hour drive from where we live. We made reservations, and I mentioned the plan to Josh. Well, it turns out, of all the campgrounds in the region, Josh had also decided to head to that one, as it connected to a long bike trail he wanted to go on. He had decided to go camping alone, so we knew Josh would be at the campground before we got there. But things were super awkward between me and him, on account of my being an asshole and him being generally a bit depressed around that time. We stayed three nights and Josh was there for the first and second night. We'd rented out a small cabin, basically a prefab shed with bunk beds because it was cheap and we have a leash reactive wimpy about rain dog and it's sometimes easier that way. Josh was tent camping in another spot. I think Josh and I were mostly planning on avoiding each other. He was rightfully still angry. Things were awkward and I figured he needed some space from me. But it turned out only one bathroom was open on our side of the campground, since it was only early April and most of the campground was still closed down for the season. Josh's campsite was right next to the open bathroom, so we ended up seeing him when we walked to the bathroom at night. I saw heard signs of one or two other groups on the far side of the campground, but they had their own bathroom open over there and we never really saw them. It's a very large and forested campground, and only small sections at either end were open for the season. The second night, Josh was out in his campsite when we came through to the bathroom before bed. It was after midnight at this point. Josh seemed super depressed, and we had a very strange and awkward conversation with him. Took care of what we needed to in the bathroom and headed back to our little shed down the road. The roads in this part of the campground were basically like an inverted F, with the bathroom above the top of the F. In between the two arms of the F was a stand of trees next to the main road, a small, locked shower building and Josh's campsite, furthest from the main road, the main road being the vertical line of the F. We were staying off the main road further down on the opposite side, so that night we'd cut past Josh's camp to get to the bathroom, but on the way back, we followed the road so as not to bother him as he seemed in a bad mood. It was dark and I'm easily spooked. We had the dog with us, which was somewhat reassuring since he looks semi-tough despite being a nutcase and a wimp. But I'm looking around nervously and as I glance over my shoulder, I think I see a man off to the side of us. My brain processes this very slowly as I just caught a glimpse of him as I turned my head and it was very dark. I convinced myself my mind was playing tricks. I didn't look back and silently walked with Sarah and the dog back to our cabin. When we got back to the cabin, I thought Sarah looked a little spooked, which is unusual since she's a lot braver than me. Eventually, she says, 
That guy was really creepy, right? So shit, he was real. I told her I saw him, but had convinced myself my eyes were playing tricks on me. But no, we both saw someone with no flashlight standing in the trees just off the road, maybe 15 feet from us. I asked if it might have been Josh. Neither of us were really convinced, but wanted to convince ourselves so we could get some sleep. And he had been wandering around being moody 15 minutes before, and it was right by his campsite. I think we didn't want to freak ourselves out any further, so we locked the cabin and didn't talk about it much more. The next morning, it was pouring rain, so Josh decided to pack up and leave early instead of spending the day in the area. We shouted goodbye to him as we headed to the bathroom, and he ran around tossing shit in his trunk and trying not to get drenched. That night was a weekend, and there was a big family in the cabin next to ours and everything felt far less spooky. But when we got back to town a day later, I texted Josh, asking him if he'd been lurking creepily in the woods. He said no. Well, I told him what we'd seen and he said he'd seen a guy the prior night lurking in the woods without a flashlight. Same general description which I'll get to same area. The guy had really creeped him out, so much so that the next day he bought the biggest mag light he could find, so he'd have more than just a pocket knife to defend himself. But he'd also mostly convinced himself it was a park ranger. Yeah, with no flashlight, let alone a vehicle but he more or less willed himself to believe it, so he could get some sleep. So, once we could no longer pretend it was Josh, Sarah, and I compared notes. What we both saw, and what Josh saw the night before, was this. A tall, gaunt white man in his late forties, with clean-shaven sunken cheeks, in the stand of trees, bramble just off the road, in the space between the arms of the F. He was wearing a raincoat, rubber boots, and a hat, and had no flashlight. He was just standing still and staring coldly in our direction. I remember his raincoat, his sunken face, and how very cold his gaze felt. In contrast, Josh is several inches shorter than whoever we saw, was not wearing a raincoat that night which we knew because we'd just seen him, but we convinced ourselves otherwise bearded, 29 years old at the time. I should add, it wasn't raining. To be clear, where this guy was was not somewhere you'd be strolling through. It was a thick, brambly area. He had made the effort to move out of the road and to stay in the shadows and away from the bright bathroom light both nights. We're sure he wasn't going to the bathroom, though we were on the women's side. You can hear the men's side clearly and Josh had been outside in view of the bathroom doors both nights. He didn't look like he lived in the woods, which is to say, he appeared clean and groomed, and his clothes weren't worn or dirty. Whatever he may have been doing in the middle of the night, in a nearly abandoned campground with no flashlight, he was clearly making an effort not to be seen. We all discussed it, and Josh ultimately called the campground to let them know. They said they'd check it out. Although my camping fees were mysteriously refunded, we never heard anything more. Josh is still a little mad at me for seeing a potential murderer lurking the woods near his tent and not doing anything. Out of curiosity, we just checked to see if anything had happened in the park. A number of people have gone missing in the state park over the years, some slightly mysteriously. 
Most were found downriver and believed to have fallen into the rapids on accident. I'm sure it's unrelated, but the whole place gives me the creeps, and I still can't figure out what that man was doing. I remember back in high school, my religion teacher shared some jaw-dropping stories with us. He claimed to have worked as an assistant to the local exorcist, involved in intense spiritual battles against the forces of darkness. It was an unexpected twist in our religious education, but it certainly grabbed our attention. He recounted encounters where he had direct conversations with the devil himself. These exchanges were chilling and unsettling as he described the cunning and manipulative nature of the fallen angel. The things he heard during those interactions would send shivers down our spines, but it didn't stop there. My teacher went on to describe the physical manifestations that accompanied these exorcisms. He spoke of furniture being violently thrown across the room, as if an invisible force was wreaking havoc. The intensity of these encounters was like something out of a horror movie. What intrigued us even more was the revelation that most of the people who required exorcism were practitioners of Satanism. It seemed that their involvement in dark rituals and worshipping the devil had invited malevolent entities into their lives. As unsettling as it was to hear, it reinforced the importance of spiritual discernment and the need for protection against evil influences. Those stories stayed with me long after high school. They challenged my beliefs and made me question the existence of supernatural forces. While I couldn't fully comprehend or verify the authenticity of my teachers' experiences, they served as a reminder of the constant struggle between good and evil that transcends the boundaries of our physical world. Whether or not one believes in the paranormal, these stories opened up discussions and expanded our understanding of faith, spirituality, and the power of belief. It was a unique and unforgettable chapter in my high school experience, where the lines between reality and the supernatural blurred, leaving us with more questions than answers. I never imagined the forest I patrolled could harbor such sinister secrets. My name is Alex, and I was a park ranger stationed in a remote, dense forest known as Ravenwood. For years, I had been responsible for ensuring the safety of visitors and protecting the fragile ecosystem within its boundaries. Ravenwood was vast, ancient, and filled with mysteries, but nothing could have prepared me for the chilling events that unfolded deep within its heart. It all started one crisp autumn evening as I was concluding my rounds. The sun had already dipped below the horizon, casting long shadows among the towering trees. I was about to head back to my ranger station when I heard it a soft, barely perceptible whisper that seemed to come from the very trees themselves. At first, I dismissed it as a trick of the wind, a figment of my fatigued imagination. But the voice persisted, growing stronger and more insistent with every step I took towards the source. It beckoned me deeper into the woods, its eerie, melodic tone drawing me in like a siren song. I couldn't resist the allure of those whispers, and I ventured further, guided solely by their spectral voices. My flashlight cut a narrow beam through the Inkai darkness, revealing gnarled roots and twisted branches that seemed to reach out for me. 
My footsteps were muffled by the thick carpet of fallen leaves, but the whispers were always there, just ahead, just out of reach. Hours seemed to pass as I pressed on, the forest around me growing denser and more oppressive. The air grew cold, and an unnatural hush settled over the woods. It was as if nature itself held its breath, awaiting some terrible revelation. Finally, I reached a clearing deep within the forest, and there, bathed in the faint glow of the moonlight, I saw it a colossal ancient tree unlike any I had ever encountered. Its massive roots writhed and twisted like serpents, and its branches loomed overhead like skeletal arms. The whispers grew more intense, swirling around me in a maddening crescendo. It was then that I realized the truth. These were not ordinary voices. They were the voices of the damned, the echoes of tormented souls that had become one with the forest. As I stood there, trembling with fear, the ground beneath me trembled, and the massive tree began to uproot itself, revealing a gaping black maw at its base. From that abyss emerged a nightmarish creature, an amalgamation of roots, earth, and shadow. Its hollow eyes locked onto mine, and I knew that I had uncovered a horrifying secret hidden for centuries. The creature's intentions were clear, it hungered for my soul, and it was a fate that countless others had met before me. With a surge of adrenaline, I turned and fled, the whispers of the forest now shrieking in rage as I distanced myself from the ancient malevolence. I ran faster than I ever had, guided only by the light of the moon and the distant beams of my flashlight. The forest seemed to conspire against me, its roots and branches reaching out to ensnare me, but I was determined to escape the clutches of that eldritch horror. Hours later, I stumbled back into the safety of the ranger station, my heart pounding in my chest. I knew that I had uncovered a darkness that should have remained hidden, a secret that would haunt me for the rest of my days. I left Ravenwood, never to return, haunted by the whispers that still echoed in my mind. The forest had revealed its malevolent secret to me, and I had narrowly escaped its grasp. But I knew that Ravenwood would always be there, waiting for the next unsuspecting soul to venture too deep into its heart, and I could only hope that they would heed the warning of the haunted whispers and turn back before it was too late. My spouse and I were riding in our private sleeping compartment on the train from Chicago to Portland, a trip we took almost every year to visit our relatives. I was keeping a close eye on the clock as the train had left with a delay and had to make numerous unscheduled stops to let other trains pass. We both honestly admitted that we were nearly naked during the journey. In the afternoon, around 2 p.m., the train made an unscheduled control stop about 10 minutes west of the Dalles, Oregon. Glancing diagonally across a snow-covered clearing between the train and the Columbia River, we spotted a dark Sasquatch stepping into the clearing accompanied by several dark birds of an unidentified species. The Sasquatch hunkered down to look at the train, occasionally getting up to walk a few steps before crouching down again. The hair on its legs stuck out on the surface of the snow, like bell-bottom pants. When hunkering down, its arms were outside its knees, and it rose without any assistance from its arms or hands. 
my spouse and I felt secure within the train and were not seen by the Sasquatch due to the tinted windows. We could exchange mutual questions during the eight-minute period that the train stopped, verifying our mutual impressions of the creature's reality and appearance. The contrasty lighting made it difficult to see the animal's features in detail. The conductor indirectly admitted to seeing it too, but the terrain's geometry prevented others in compartments ahead or behind ours from viewing it. We couldn't alert others during the event because of our state of undress. The train left with the Sasquatch still watching. We both stated our absolute conviction that what we saw was a Sasquatch. It happened five years ago. The official ruling was that his death was caused by a rogue bear attack. You know, when a bear gets a little too used to eating human food, so it doesn't feel threatened anymore and attacks a human. They all know it wasn't a bear though. Bears don't leave wounds like that, and they sure as hell don't pose the body 70 feet up in a dead tree. Yeah, I said pose, but before I get into the details, I should explain a bit about myself. Now, I'm a park ranger in a very popular national park in the northern United States. I don't want to say exactly which one, although I doubt I'll keep my job for much longer. Anyway, that's partially why I'm posting this. I need to tell somebody else about this story, and like I said, my colleagues don't want to talk about it. Being a park ranger has given me a lot of weird stories, and everybody is used to weird happening in the woods, but this was on a completely different level. For days, we had been getting reports from campers and hikers about strange noises coming from a section of deep backcountry forests. Growls, yipping, even human-sounding voices. Equipment and food had been going missing from backcountry campgrounds. All pretty typical stuff that can be explained away pretty easily. Many animals thieve food make weird noises, and even the human voices can be explained by the sound that foxes and mountain lions make at night. But we needed to investigate either way because an animal that is conditioned to human food is dangerous, so we sent our veteran backcountry ranger, Craig McKay. This guy had been working there for 30 years, was an expert outdoorsman, and was my mentor when I first started. As always, he jumped into the task always eager to go into the backcountry, even though he was getting a little older. I'll pause now and let Craig tell the rest of the story. Well, his journal will have to tell the rest of the story because he isn't alive to tell it. I found his journal, a flashlight in his backpack, inside a small cave near the location of his body, a couple of days after he didn't return, and we had sent out a search party to find him. I haven't shared this journal with anyone, not even the other rangers until now. I'm not exactly sure why I've kept it hidden, other than that the truth seemed so messed up and unreal. I didn't want it to damage people's memory of Craig. I'm not even sure if I believe it myself. Everything I'm going to read to you, he had written down over the two days he was out on his backcountry excursion. October 21st, 2011, Day 1. Today was a long day, and I can't say that I've made much progress. I've hiked about 15 miles over the course of the day, starting down in the gully where the reports first started and ending up at my current camp, which is on the southwest side of Bald Knob. 
I figure it's a good enough place to keep an eye out for anything coming and going through the valley. Earlier, I found some tracks in the ground in the area, and as close as I can tell, they're from a mountain goat. Odd that it would travel alone, but maybe it was separated from its herd or dying. It had an odd gait. I followed them for a while, but they didn't lead anywhere, so I abandoned them. Near the tracks was a pervasive smell of death, and I'm assuming a goat got separated and died. Tomorrow I'm planning to hike across the valley to the mountain on the opposite side and see if I can't catch a track of whatever is harassing the campers. October 22nd, 2011, morning of day two, quick note while I eat breakfast. Last night was a long night, one of the longest I've had in a while. About an hour after going to bed, I heard light steps near the campsite. I grabbed the rifle and went out to investigate. No lights, so my eyes could stay adjusted to the dark. The second I stepped out of my tent, the noise stopped. Whatever was there knew that I was watching. I made a couple of circles around the campsite and found nothing, but I could feel something watching me from the shadows. As I got back into my tent, I thought I saw a tall silhouette in the clearing, but I must have just been seeing things. It was too skinny to be a bear, and nothing else is that tall. The strong scent of death was still present and kept me wary all night. Today's mission has changed. I just got a radio call that a couple of hikers haven't returned when they were supposed to last night and might be lost. I'm still crossing the valley today, but this time to reach where the hikers were supposed to be. Last October 22nd, 2011, night of day two. Stopped for the night in the valley, cooking dinner now. Chicken and rice again. Dead tired, and I'm getting too old for this. No progress on the hikers and still smells like death, though much stronger than before. I've just heard some sounds that sound like they could be voices. I can't get the radio to work in this valley. Looks like I'm not getting dinner tonight after all. Going to take a light pack and see if I can follow these voices. October 22nd, 2011, night of day two, second entry scribbled. Dear God, what did I find? Barely made it to this cave. I can hear it scratching and gurgling outside. Going to try and block the entrance and see if I could stay here overnight. I found out where the smell of death came from. Got the cave entrance cracked, covered with a large rock and some brush. It will have to do. The beast is still outside, clawing at the crack in the rock. Don't think I'll sleep tonight anyway, not after what I saw. I might as well record this because these might be my last words. For the first time in my career, I'm scared. I don't even know what I saw. It was huge, about seven and a half feet tall, and possibly fast. Smells like putrid meat. Earlier, when I had left camp, the voices outside became more and more persistent. They were definitely human voices. I followed them until I reached the clearing, and suddenly everything went silent. No voices, no hikers. It sounded like the forest itself was holding its breath. I heard a slight sound behind me before I was thrown off my feet, knocked the wind out of me. My rifle was ripped from my hand before I could even use it. I was picked up by my leg and thrown across the clearing. I could feel its claws digging like knives into my muscle. The thing dragged me up right against the tree and I could feel its breath on my neck, breathing out a putrid smell. 
I could feel the blood pouring from my leg and soaking into my pants. The agonizing pain from the wound left me trembling. I could feel the weight of its body as it pushed up against me, ready to go in for the kill. I heard the smack of its mouth opening and prepared myself to die when a crash in the distance distracted the beast long enough for me to make a break for it. I ran for my life and I didn't look back but knew it wasn't far behind me. About 20 feet away was the entry to this cave that I was able to squeeze into. It's still outside, I could hear it shuffling around trying to get into the crack, and I could hear the heavy breathing, the sucking gasping sound coming from its mouth. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Dear God, please help me out of this. I want to see my wife again, I want to see my kids again. My nose is filled with the putrid smell of impending death. If I make it through the night, my plan is to wait until first light and try to escape back to the ranger station. Those are the last words we have by Craig McKay. When he never reported back, we assumed his radio had gone out of range, but after a couple of days, we sent a search party to find him. Well, we found him all right. From the tracks, it looks like Craig left the cave early the next day. He makes it about 50 feet from the cave entrance when a second set of tracks catches up to him. Goat tracks more specifically, a goat with only two legs. The gate matches something that would be a bit more than seven feet, like Craig described in his journal. What we found of Craig was dragged 70 feet up a nearby tree and torn to pieces. He was hardly recognizable. His torso was jammed onto a short branch on the tree that kept him hanging there his arms splayed out to his sides. His innards were strewn around the base of the tree. The jagged shadow remains of his leg bones stuck out of the early snowfall that had come to the mountains this year. Nothing appeared eaten or missing, but not a single piece of him was left untouched by the monster. It took the rest of the day and a special rope team to get him down. The missing hikers were never found. Those scraps of clothing matching what they were wearing have been found in the same valley where Craig died. Like I said earlier, the official story is a bear attack. Bears don't do this. We don't know what did this. We've rerouted trails to stay away from this area, but we still hear reports of humans sending voices coming from the woods, and we've had some more hikers than normal go missing in the last five years. They are found, but it's always too late. Some are arranged like Craig was, broken warnings to other hikers who dare intrude upon the beast's forest. Some are just never seen again. I had lived in this small town my entire life, surrounded by the dense forest that stretched for miles in every direction. The woods were a constant source of fascination and mystery for me, and I spent countless hours exploring their depths, learning their secrets. One evening, as I sat on the back porch of our family home, I heard something that would change my life forever. It began as a low, guttural howl, slowly rising in pitch until it carried off into the distance. The sound was unlike anything I had ever heard before louder and more powerful than any animal I knew. It repeated over and over again, each howl lasting for about 30 seconds. As the strange howls continued, the dogs in the area began barking and howling in response. They seemed agitated and restless. 
their behavior only settling once the howls ceased. I was left with an overwhelming sense of unease, wondering what kind of creature could make such a sound. A few days later, my father had a bizarre encounter of his own. He was outside when he heard a loud shaking coming from one of the trees in the forest behind our house. He said it sounded like something huge was up in the tree, causing it to sway and groan under its weight. My father was convinced it was a man in the tree, but he couldn't get a clear look at whatever it was. As he scrambled to find a flashlight, the creature suddenly pushed off, causing the tree to crack and fall onto our back deck, crushing the fence in the process. The incident left us all shaken and confused. What kind of creature could cause such destruction? My father was adamant that it had been a man up in the tree, but I couldn't shake the memory of those eerie howls. Was it possible that there was something more lurking in the woods around our home? Over the next few weeks, I became obsessed with discovering the truth. I researched local legends and folklore, trying to find any mention of creatures that could make such a sound or cause such damage. I spent hours in the woods, searching for any signs of the mysterious beast. It wasn't until months later, when I stumbled upon an old book about cryptids and mysterious creatures, that I began to piece together the puzzle. The descriptions of a large, powerful creature that howled and shook trees matched what we had experienced. Although I couldn't prove it, I was convinced that we had encountered a cryptid in our own backyard. The howls and tree-shaking incidents stopped as suddenly as they had begun, leaving us with more questions than answers. I continued my search for answers, driven by a need to understand the unknown. The experience had shown me that there was more to our world than met the eye, and I was determined to uncover its secrets. I'll never forget the day I met Nyaduta, a man known throughout Kenya as the one who had cheated death. It was a hot afternoon in Kitui, about 100 miles east of Nairobi, and I had come to interview him about his incredible experiences with life and death. As I approached his humble abode, I couldn't help but feel a mixture of curiosity and apprehension. Mutata, a 60-year-old shepherd, had been pronounced dead three times, only to disrupt his own funeral and rise minutes before burial. His last resurrection had been in May, and I was eager to hear his story firsthand. Sitting down with him, I noticed a glimmer of sadness in his eyes. His brother Timothy had told me earlier that Mutata had been disappointed because Pope John Paul Roman II had refused to grant him an audience during his visit to Kenya in August. I decided to begin our conversation by asking him about his first encounter with death. I was just a child, barely three years old, he began, his voice tinged with both wonder and sadness. My body had been wrapped in sheets and blankets and was being lowered into the ground when I let out a cry and was hauled back to the surface. I listened, captivated, as he recounted his second death at the age of 22. After a six-day search, his lifeless body was found, and yet again he forced open his coffin lid as it was being lowered into the ground. His most recent death occurred in May, when he was pronounced dead after a short illness suspected to be cholera. 
However, he revived after a day of lying in state and demanded a drink of water. As our conversation drew to a close, Nutita looked at me and said solemnly, I have cheated death three times, but I know that the fourth time will be for good. His words sent a shiver down my spine, and I could see the weight of this knowledge in his eyes. Twelve days ago, Mitura passed away, and this time there were no miracles. He was buried without fanfare or publicity in a simple ceremony in Kitui. The exact cause of death was not disclosed, but it seems that his premonition had come true. As I reflect on my encounter with Mutuda, I am struck by the fragility and mystery of life. His story serves as a reminder to cherish every moment and live each day as if it were our last. For Mutuda, the man who had cheated death, the final curtain had finally fallen. Friday night, I was near Blue River in Colorado. We couldn't make it to the actual campsites, so we car camped for the night, got a fire going and watched the full moon slowly peek up over the mountains. After a couple hours, we heard something that I thought was an elk bugle at first, but elk don't typically bugle at night, not that I've heard of at least. Then it started changing tones and went to a higher pitch. It changed tones and pitch a few different times. It wasn't screaming or anything like that, but it was eerie. It was going on for a solid minute before anyone said anything. At which point we were all weirded out because we've never heard anything like that. I've listened to every animal I could think of in the area, from mountain lions to owls, and nothing matches the sound we heard. One of my friends described it almost like a siren song. Does anyone have any ideas on what it could be? I never thought I would see anything like it. It was just another day driving home from work with my two buddies Seamus and Sterling. We had just finished work and were driving down the road when we saw it under the streetlight. We couldn't quite make out what it was at first, but as we got closer, we realized it was no ordinary animal. Seamus shouted, guys, look at that. And that's when we all saw it. The figure was slouched over and had very long arms. It had an ape-like face and it was huge. We had never seen anything like it before. At first, we thought it was a really big animal, but it didn't run like one. It ran in a very ape-like way. As soon as it noticed us, it turned in our direction. We were terrified. We had heard of the legendary Yowie, but we never thought we would come face to face with one. Sterling said we were in utter disbelief of what we were seeing. It didn't make sense to us, and we were all confused and scared. After the encounter, we couldn't stop talking about what we saw. We went on a few hikes to see if we could find anything, but we didn't have any luck. We even talked to the locals, and they told us they had seen evidence of the Yowie before. I never believed in anything like this before, but after that experience, I know there's something out there. Something big and scary. I hardly slept that night, and I felt overwhelmed that I had seen something that I never believed in previously. It's an experience that will stay with me forever.